Good morning, and again, welcome. It's good to be together. Uh, This is a special time in our week, every week, as we're identified and unified in our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a joy to be together and to do what we've been doing all week. We've been worshiping the Lord individually, and now we do so all together corporately. We're in 1 Samuel 2 today. 1 Samuel chapter 2. I invite you to join me in your Bibles. We're back to a familiar story of God's work and the circumstances of humanity. And our time in God's Word today will demonstrate that God is active and He's involved in the affairs of humanity to accomplish His purpose. Have you ever wondered if there's organization in all the chaos. Perhaps you help in a children's ministry here, and on occasion you've taken a moment to step back and to survey the room, and you wonder, is there any organization in all the chaos? The toys are strewn about the room, and there's children in various phases of active activity, and there are malodorous things going on about the room and workers going here and carrying a child there. And you look at it and you say, is there any organization to this chaos? Maybe this has happened to you when you go to a party at a friend's house. And you walk in and there are people everywhere, so much so that it's difficult to move room to room. And you're trying to, you know, balance that cup and that plate of food as, as you try to move from uh, room to room. And somebody bumps past you and smartly says, this is what you call organized chaos. And you wonder, is there actually any organization to it all? Perhaps that's what some wondered about Israel as we come to First Samuel. What we get to see is God's sovereign care, God's sovereign care throughout history. Israel's history has been, to put it mildly, a bit rough. You might remember God rescues them from Egyptian slavery and brings them into the promised land. And Israel was to obey the covenant commands of God, but they majorly failed. And we cringe and we writhe a bit in misery as we read through the book of Judges. And we see their history, their disregard, their ignorance of the God who had been so utterly faithful to them. The book of Judges shows us just how much they need God and faithful leaders who will point them to God. The book of Judges shows us total moral chaos. It's one of those books you kind of read with your hand over your eyes, you know, just peeking out like what could possibly happen next? And you come to the end of the book of Judges and these are these are the final words of the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. 
total gut punch, right? You feel the hollowness in those words, the cold sense of emptiness and moral confusion. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, the books of Samuel follow the book of Judges. So that's how we end. And then we come right away to 1 Samuel. And we start in 1 Samuel with a man who had two wives. And one of those wives, um, commonly referred to as Penina, though depending on who you ask, it can be pronounced Penina, but one of those pronunciations causes me to think of a hot smashed sandwich, so we'll stick with Penina. As we read the opening words in the book of 1 Samuel, we wonder, is the chaos going to continue? Penina cruelly and mercilessly taunted and makes fun of Hannah year after year because she couldn't have children. And unfortunately, her husband wasn't really a helpful consoler. But within what appears to be chaos, we see a glimmer of hope through her life. Hannah prays to the Lord for a son, whom she then promises to give to the Lord for his whole life to serve God. Then we get a bit of back and forth here, don't we, as we're introduced to Eli. And Eli is the priest, right? And as we see Eli, we see Hannah come in and she is praying so earnestly that he mistakes her for somebody who is drunk. And he walks over to rebuke her and she says, no, I'm, I'm not drunk. I'm in earnest prayer to the Lord. This is a woman deeply distressed. And hope, rescue, and God's sovereign care only continues to grow throughout the book. As we see chapter 1 end with Hannah fulfilling her promise to God to leave her little son Samuel with Eli to serve the Lord there. Uh, something I'm encouraging you not to try here at church. We do ask that you help the nursery workers and uh, pick up your children in an expeditious manner after the service. You think about this scenario. This was a woman so utterly overwhelmed with grief and sorrow. And she prays to God. We see this in chapter 1. She prays to God. God answers her prayer. And she commits, before God ever answers her prayer, she commits, I will give you this child, this son, to serve you his entire life. And that's exactly what she does, and that's how chapter 1 closes out. She says to Eli, I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. And they worshiped. And the merciful, beautifully orchestrated plan of God's sovereign care grows more loudly in chapter 2, where we come to what is commonly referred to as Hannah's prayer. And we read, and I invite you to join me now in chapter 2, verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. 
There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. But the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the eternal word of the only God. And it puts on full display the joy and the rejoicing that comes from recognizing and trusting God for who he is. As we look at verses 1 through 3, we take this phrase from Hannah's prayer, there is none like God. There is none like God. Hannah's prayer is profoundly personal. We look at the first verse and we see five personal pronouns. This was someone who was deeply invested And she knew God as her rescue and her salvation. This wasn't a superficial situation for her, but a deeply distressing, difficult set of circumstances. You probably can identify this pleading with the Lord, pouring your heart out in prayer to God, feeling afflicted by your set of circumstances. Her rival, Penina's taunts and ridiculed happened year after year. It was constant. It wasn't a pleasant place to live. It was a difficult place to live. And Hannah, Hannah ended up in tears, choosing not to eat. Now, in chapter 2, we see a totally different prayer, don't we? Instead of a deeply distressed prayer coming from the hurt of affliction, she prays a profoundly intense prayer of devotion and joy. She had earnestly, fervently pled with the Lord, and God responded to her, which she recognizes here. Her joy then was not found in the gift, but her joy was found in the giver of that gift. As both here in verse 1 and the rest of the prayer demonstrate, God had transformed her. 
and deeply changed her. In chapter 1, she's described as deeply distressed, weeping bitterly, a sad heart, a troubled spirit, unwilling to eat, right? Like this is deep distress. And see the contrast now as she recognizes the supremacy of God through relief from her deep distress. Here's her phrases. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My strength or horn is lifted up by the Lord. I rejoice. This is a totally different scene, isn't it? God's salvation. God was the focus for her of her desire, her praise, and her worship. And I don't know that anything else expresses this more tangibly to us than the fact that she gives God her only son, Samuel, that we know of at this time. She leaves him in service to the Lord. She loved the giver of the gift more than the gift. And we'll see throughout chapter 2, she dearly loved her son. But God was her focus, the focus of her desire, the focus of her praise, the focus of her worship. And she credits God for this strength and triumph. This is her horn being exalted. In this agricultural society, they would have been familiar with animals with horns. Uh, Those of you that traveled to different places in the world, uh, you probably recognize that livestock roam the streets. And there's more prized livestock than others. And that's what she's pointing to in this type of societal setting. This was an animal of strength. A noble animal. And she's saying, God is the one that's given me strength. Samuel was God's gift. She'd been cruelly mocked. But now her rival could mock her no more. Her affliction had been removed, the torment gone, replaced with joy and rejoicing. And that was all because of God and his providential working. His purposeful plan being accomplished in time for all humanity. It was his salvation, his rescue of her. And this joyous celebration language that she uses, it's really quite similar to the people of Israel's rejoicing. Uh, You might remember this, when God rescued them from Egyptians. All that terror, all that fear, all that awfulness going on, you can just imagine when you let your mind go a little bit, how the people of Israel would have felt. They come across that God having again rescued them, being faithful to his promises. And this is what they say. Jesus and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God, I will exalt him. So Hannah's situation appears to be like Israel's situation. And God is already at work in these beginning pages of 1 Samuel to bring about his grand and marvelous plan of redemption. It's kind of a fun thing to see. As you think about the cross of Christ and the crucifixion and the resurrection that we we just remembered Uh, a little over a month ago now, and we think about how God had planned that all out. And we see it happening right here. And it will become clear to us as we go through Hannah's prayer that the eye 
of sovereignty is on the full plan of redemption. All right here in Hannah's prayer. A woman who loved and knew God. We're provided with a wonderful contrast between Penina and her cruel, mean-spirited taunting of Hannah's hardship and Hannah's response of trust and confidence in the supreme and only God. In verse 2, she praises God for his uniqueness. Now, I don't know if you ever do this, but I would encourage you at some point in your personal time with the Lord to stop and think about the uniqueness of our God. What makes him so different? How is he wholly other? She says, there's none holy like the Lord. There's none besides the Lord. There's no rock like God. So there is none who can compare to the greatness, the power, the holiness of God. His holiness is his complete separateness of sin, yes, but it's also his moral perfections. God is a justice-loving God. God is a righteous God. He's a God of truth. Isn't it frustrating to live in a world where you're just not quite sure what is true and what is not? God is a God of truth. He's completely trustworthy. What he says, he does. There's never been a time where God has been unfaithful to his word. He is a righteous God, faithful God, promise-keeping God, a God who is inherently good. Now, we look at that, and that's hard for us to understand. This is what makes it difficult for us to understand God, because God is inherently good. We know our motives. Even when we do kind things, we recognize that maybe our motives are tainted with selfishness and sin, perhaps even pride. But God, he's inherently good. He's humble. He's patient. He's kind. You maybe look back on these past seven days and you consider how you have done. And you look at the character of God. And like Hannah, you cry out, God, there's none like you. A good, a gracious, a kind, a perfect God. And being described as a rock speaks to his protection, his stability, his strength, the surety of his power. Maybe had people promise you things that they really couldn't deliver on. I learned very early on as a father don't promise things you don't have the power to accomplish. Like, I might want to take you for ice cream, but there really isn't enough time to do what we have to do and go for ice cream. So I'm not going to promise you that we're going for ice cream today. Right? And that's where children then get frustrated with their parents because parents use the word maybe a whole lot. And you kind of wish they would remove that word maybe from their vocabulary, but all they're simply trying to do, just a little air cover for parents today, all they're trying to do is recognize we would like to do this, but it may not be possible to do this. With God, this is so different. When he says, I will save you to the uttermost, he has all power to do it. When he says, I will hear your prayers, he has all power to do it. 
When he says, I love you unconditionally, he does it. He is holy, unique. There is none like the Lord. There's none besides the Lord. There's no rock, no safety, no surety, no security like our God. And through instruction, Hannah also recognizes in verse 3 another characteristic of God that makes him wholly unique. He is a God of knowledge. I want you to think about that phrase for, with me for just a minute. He's a God of knowledge. And, and this is how she describes him. The Lord is a God of knowledge. By him, actions are weighed. God knows people's thoughts. He knows their desires, their intentions, their motivations. It's not fun to be a person who gets duped gets taken advantage of because you trusted in somebody who really wasn't what they pretended to be. Nobody likes a hypocrite. God can't be fooled. He's not manipulated. You can't keep secrets from him. He knows no mysteries, so don't boast. Don't use arrogant words because he humbles the proud. You know, pride and arrogance can be a form of pretending. Uh, we see this in the sports arena a lot, right? You've got basketball teams warming up, and as they're warming up and walking past each other, uh, we're going to say they're marketing their skills to be a little bit more than they actually are, right? And so there's this chatter back and forth between the team. The teams, the rivals. And, uh, of course, the game starts, and soon what actually is skill and is not is, is clearly perceived uh, to all. Well, you, you can't get away with that with the God of knowledge, can you? Manipulation, intimidation, it's proud talk. Somebody who lords their power over those they lead, it's proud talk talk. Somebody who refuses to be led in pride and disobedience. God sees through it all. And Hannah is saying, don't boast. Don't use arrogant words. God sees. And just think, isn't this what Penina did? Like, was it, was it her choosing that she had all these children? Did she have a lot of control over that? Not really. As Hannah's going to go on in her prayer, she's going to show it's ultimately God who decided this. And, and Penina is using this to beat up verbally Hannah. Why didn't she give praise to the one who made this possible? You see the arrogant words, the proud talk. Wasn't a heart submitted to God giving him the worship that he deserved? She demonstrates grotesque pride in her words of torment for Hannah. And as we've seen in the books of Samuel, so this is us going a little bit past chapter 2, I know. But as we've seen in the books of Samuel, pride has been the chief ruin of Saul, Hophni, and Phinehas, the Philistines, Goliath, Nabal, Absalom, and many more. You can't fool God. 
Sure, you can use your mouth to deceive, but God isn't deceived by it. He's the one who weighs actions. He's the one who knows. He knows what you're struggling with today. He knows the choices you made these past seven days. You can't hide those things from him. Sometimes in talking with people, it's revealed that they don't want to talk to God about the sins that they've committed. And then we just go through a passage like this where we discover, but he already knows and he wants you to come to him and confess those sins because with him is mercy and pardon. Hannah continues her prayer in the next section, verses 4 through 8, by focusing on God's sovereignty. And she does this through seven contrasts that we see. God is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over all things. In verse 4, we're told God makes the weak strong and the strong weak. Just think about this. You've got a little shepherd boy. And you've got a great big warrior with a lot of experience and knowledge in battle. And he's got the most seasoned soldiers in Israel's armies terrified of him. God takes the weak and he makes them strong. God takes the strong and he makes them weak. The bows of the warriors are broken. It won't be but a few chapters from here in 1 Samuel that the Philistines will be in view. And God demonstrates to the Philistines that he can make the strong weak. They're actually stymied by his strength, a little baffled, and they quickly recognize their error in taking something that did not belong to them. Through his people, Israel, God demonstrates he can make the weak strong, or as Hannah puts it, the feeble are clothed with strength. When you know God as Hannah does, human strength, human weakness, and power are all viewed very differently. Just like Nabal, who seemed to have plenty and lacked nothing, especially when it came to food. He's reduced with his arrogant words to nothing, no longer well-fed. And David's army is well-fed. Or as Hannah puts it here in her prayer, those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Her view of God is that he is the reverser of fortunes or circumstances. The one who can change the events of humanity. Just like he did with her when she was childless and gave birth. And God blessed her with at least five additional children beyond Samuel. This is God. It will look bleak to us. It will look impossible to us. But we have to consistently come back to the same theology of Hannah and remember we serve the God of knowledge, the God of the impossible, the God who is working out his plan and nothing and no one can prevent him. Oh, the enemies look strong. They look powerful. Their numbers are many. Why does it seem like God's people are slaughtered all day long? We look at believers in many different countries across the world. Their numbers are few, their faithfulness great, and they're martyred. Today, believers will be killed because of their belief in this one true God. And it looks like the enemy is winning, and the battle isn't going well for God's people. And here's what Hannah recognizes. God always wins. You can't thwart 
sovereignty. You can't hide from the all-knowing, the all-seeing one who weighs the actions and the attitudes and the intentions of our heart. She's seeing her circumstances and the lives of those around her through the lens of who God actually is. She uses contrasts in verses 6 through 8 that give yet more evidence of God's sovereignty in the affairs of humanity. Listen to some of these. He's called the giver of life and the giver of death. Why would we worry about when we die? The giver of life, the taker of life knows. Our lives are in his good and gracious care. We really can trust him with his timing. He's the one who makes rich and poor, as verses 7 and 8 tell us. And he's the creator and the sustainer of the world, as the end of verse 8 tells us. So he's the one who established the world, and he's the one who sustains all existence in his world. So arrogant mouths can speak against the Lord and seek to subvert his control over all things. I appreciated Leslie's prayer because she is right. Too often we're quick to believe the lies of our adversary, the lies of our culture who twist the truth or tell us outright lies. It's hopeless. Give up. Why do you believe in that God? Don't you realize history's going to judge you harshly for believing these things? These are the lies of our enemy, and arrogant mouths can speak against the Lord, but they will not stand. They can never prevail because God protects his sovereign plan. God protects his sovereign plan. In verse 9, he's described as the guardian of his people. He guards the very steps of his faithful ones. What confidence, what assurance that gives to us who are his people seeking to follow him with our whole existence. Sometimes it can feel uncertain out there, can't it? You're just not sure. And you go to God's word and you fellowship with his people here and you find stability that nothing else in life can give. That's because he's guarding the steps of his faithful ones. And we remember the words of Psalm 1, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous. It's kind of one of those thoughts that's even hard to contain, right? Like, God watches over me? He takes thought for me? But God guards the way of his people. Psalm 23, he leads me in paths of righteousness. So the wicked lose because they cannot succeed in their own strength. They have been rejected by the Lord, who then opposes them. He becomes their very opponent. Listen to these words. This is how God is described in his actions towards those who oppose him. Shattering, thundering, judging, this is a God who can do all of those. Remember, this is a terrifying thing because we just acknowledged God has the ability to do everything he says he can do. So when he says he will do something, we know he will keep his word. And we also know he has the ability to do all he has said he will do. So if you're in a position of opposition to God, this isn't a healthy place for you today. 
he gives power and he lifts up the horn of his king. Now skipping ahead again, we see Saul. And we see Saul, the first king, choose disobedience and rebellion against him. 1 Samuel 15, Eli chose to overlook the grievous sins of his sons. And we have right here in this account, chapters 1 and 2, God installing, choosing, preparing his replacement. God replaces Eli with Samuel. Samuel chooses to obey and submit himself freely to God. So the books of Samuel repeatedly demonstrate throughout that God is the one who can change the events of humanity. And those who try to stand stand against him, they fall every time. It's not wise to set yourself against the Lord. In fact, it's downright deadly. Disobedience to him has harsh consequences, and that is still true today. I know there are the mockers out there that say, well, prove it to me. I can stand here and blaspheme God, and nothing will happen to me. Not today, not for weeks, not for months. And as one faithful preacher said, do you think you can exhaust the patience of a righteous God? That doesn't mean that God isn't just. That doesn't mean that God is powerless. It means he's immensely loving and kind to give opportunity for you to see your error and turn to him before it's eternally too late. If you choose to disregard, demean, and ignore him, there are hard consequences. As a believer, you know what I'm talking about. Being out of fellowship with God, it affects every aspect of your life. He will judge the ends of the earth. That's Hannah's prayer in verse 10. And we have the reality of that judgment spelled out in the rest of our Bible, but he also gives mercy and pardon and full forgiveness to all who come to him. And he offers that to you. Perhaps you see yourself here in these verses where you have opposed God and you have faced hard consequences and you're recognizing, I can't keep going this way. It's not only not working, it's a miserable existence. God offers to you this invitation to come. And to believers who are living for themselves, a living apart from the purposes God gives to us so clearly in his word for our existence, he offers to you restored fellowship, renewed fellowship, enjoyable fellowship through you coming to him in confession of those sins, repenting of those sins, committing yourself again to him. And here's the beauty of it. This is God's word to us as far as as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is our gentle, loving, gracious shepherd king. And he offers salvation. He offers pardon freely. Verse 10 focuses our attention on what is to come. Throughout Samuel and really the rest of redemptive history, have a word 
leadership. God will raise up leadership for his people. And as we flip just a few pages and we see Saul come on the scene, we see that human leadership is flawed. And and Saul is removed because of his disobedience. His opposition to God costs him dearly. God then brings David, but we also know that David was not a perfect guy. We know he's got a lot of problems, and we're going to get to hear more about those. But we see humanity is never the perfect example or leadership. We need one who is perfect. Then as we turn from the Old to the New Testament, we see God's marvelous providential plan being accomplished. In Matthew 1, we read these words. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is our King David. God's promise to him, he keeps. God, right here, is bringing about his divine plan to send his only son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the perfect Redeemer King. He's the anointed one, King of kings, Lord of lords. No fatal flaws, no failures. The rescuer, the rescuer of us from both his and our enemies. So the chaos in Judges is replaced with the beautiful prayer of Hannah. A woman from a no-name place who put her confidence in God. It's beautiful because of the faith she demonstrated. Beautiful because of the adoration and praise to the only God. Highlighting his character, his marvelous working in the history and future of humanity. He's not a God of chaos. He's not dead. He doesn't sleep. He's not unconcerned. Oh, he is actively engaged. He is aware, the God of knowledge. God had a plan all along, and he brings that plan to completion. By bringing down Saul, raising up David, removing Eli and his evil sons, replacing them with Samuel, highlighting Hannah's faith and trust, Hannah, a woman who feared and followed the Lord, Hannah, who points us to our need to know and follow the Lord. And he gives us hope, confidence, and eternal joy in him again through her prayer, exalting him for his faithfulness, his sovereignty, and protection. So we too can say with Hannah, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord There is no one besides you, and there is no rock like our God. Let's go to him in prayer.
our dear Father and Lord and eternal God. Our lives are yours. To see Hannah's prayer, to recognize these truths again, our hearts are overwhelmed. To see your perfect plan being accomplished all the way back to this time period. And to see how you've been faithful to your promises from then until now. We're not only amazed, we're overwhelmed. We thank you for your mercy, for your truth, for your grace, for your kindness in giving us this eternal word. We're not worthy, but we're grateful that Jesus Christ is King of kings and he is Lord of lords and there is none like you. So to you, our dear God, be glory and honor and majesty forever and evermore. Amen.